This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, here at Bold Dominion, we typically focus on the machinations of power and money and lawmaking in Richmond. But Virginia also sends 11 lawmakers to the U.S. House of Representatives. And all of them are on the ballot Tuesday, November 8th. Hey, that means election day is less than two weeks away. Now, you listen to this podcast, so you probably already knew that. I mean, you might have even voted early. But if not, do make sure you go vote. You can even do same-day voter registration at the polls. That's a recent change to Virginia's voting rules. So there are three regular podcasts about Virginia state politics. At least three that I know of. And for today's episode, we're crossing all the streams. That's just like in Ghostbusters. But instead of fighting Gozer, we're crossing the streams to help explain Virginia's upcoming congressional elections. Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner and I are joined by Michael Pope from Pod Virginia and Chaz Nuttycomb from Analysis. They help explain how the midterm races are going and what they mean for our country. So if you're curious about how Virginia has changed since redistricting, or why Glenn Youngkin is zipping around the country in a red sweater vest, or what election denialism means for the future of our democracy, stay tuned. Hey, and for the real nerds among us, stay with us until the very end for some amazing trivia about former President John Tyler. I'm not actually joking. All right, so we're here on the podcast, and I want to hear from you all. What is the general landscape of uh, Virginia politics in, in fall 2022 right now as we record this? What's What does it look like out there? Michael, let's start with you. Well, the most competitive seats are certainly the ones in Congress. Those are the ones most people are focused on, the highest profile of the stuff that's going to be on the ballot this year. Um, and chief among them, of course, is the second congressional district down in Virginia Beach, where we've got the incumbent Congresswoman Elaine Luria, challenged by Republican State Senator Jen Kiggins. And like all seats, this seat has been redistricted. It is now mainly a Virginia Beach seat, like 60% of the voters here are in Virginia Beach. And the old, the old version of the district um, was very different demographically. This is actually the, the redistricted version of the second congressional district uh, moved from an R plus two to an R plus six. So just the, you know, the landscape of that congressional district alone has really shifted. Um, so that's the one that is sort of at the top of everyone's list. And then there's also the seventh congressional district where you got Abigail Spanberger being challenged by a Republican challenger, Yesley Vega. Um, Jennifer Wexton has a Republican challenger, Hung Cow. These are all sort of the, at the top of everybody's concerns. There's also some local races in Arlington and Herndon. And um, so there's lots of stuff on the ballot and lots of interesting things to look at this election cycle. Well, let's start um, with Elaine Luria, uh, the big race that you mentioned before, uh, incumbent Democrat who was elected in that Hampton Roads district, uh, the old second district as part of a sort of uh, reaction to Trump, the, the Democratic sweep a few years ago. Um, now, Elaine Luria is facing a, a pretty tough challenge from Jen Kiggins. Uh, the various polls call it a toss up. Chaz Nuttycomb, you're with us and you're one of those, those uh, prognosticators. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this particular race? Yeah, we um, we still have a toss up in our forecast. You know, Luria did well relative to the old second district uh, back in 2018 and 2020. 
Jen Higgins was a hell of an overperformer back in 2019. The state senate district she represents is much more blue. It's uh, bluer than uh, the congressional district, Virginia's second overall. I think the redistricting did not favor Luria. Uh, the district has gotten uh, redder. So, you know, it's going to be tough for her. Can I ask you about the uh, recent Wasson Center poll in the second congressional district? I don't know if you saw this, but uh, it had Luria and Kiggins both tied at 45% each. And, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about polling at, at the congressional district level. I mean, what do we make of this Wasson Center poll where the candidates are tied? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the fact that they're tied um, at this point and the generic ballot continues to get more and more Republican as it is currently, it's not good news for Luria. Um, and that Wasson poll also pointed out some interesting other things going on here in the second congressional district, like the enthusiasm gap favors Republicans. Republicans are a lot more enthusiastic about going to the polls than Democrats in this in this poll. Um, and then also the the issue that people were most focused on in this congressional district at this time when this poll was taken was the economy. And it wasn't even close, like the economy was twice or three times more popular than the number two issue on the list, which I think was threats to democracy, if I remember correctly. But in any event, the economy is what people is really what's driving people in this district, which is bad news for Democrats. Yeah. And, you know, that's not just in the Virginia second. Um, the economy has become more and more of an issue rather than abortion. Abortion has become less of an issue to the voters while uh, the economy has and that's not really uh, great news for the Democrats because they're really hoping after uh, Dobbs got overturned that they'd be able to use anger uh, against the Republicans on the issue of abortion. It's pretty much going to look like a regular midterm now, whereas a few months ago, it looked like it could be an oddity where it'd be more of a neutral year. I want to ask both of you really about, about the economy as a big issue. And you're right, it is. Inflation something that a lot of people are thinking about. How is it, though, that, that Republicans somehow always own the issue of economy like they're better for it when when I mean, historically, and I've been very critical of a lot of Democrats, too, over the years. But historically, you look at, at economic performance over the last few decades and it tends to be better under Democratic administrations. <laughs> so what what's what gives? Well, you know, yeah. I, I would also say Republicans don't always own the economy. If you think about the election of Barack Obama in 2008, it was a rejection of the George W. Bush economy. So it's really just a, a when, when things aren't going well, it's just a, a, a referendum on we don't like who's in office now, regardless of kind of who the party is. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and it's just the fact that, you know, if the economy is bad, uh, the incumbent president. Uh, the incumbent governing party is going to see losses and whether it be a midterm or presidential year. Let me ask you a little bit more about Elaine Luria. Um, I, I've seen her in the news a fair bit. She played a very active role on the uh, January 6th commission investigating uh, Trump's role and, and different leaders role in the um, uh, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Um, and you, you mentioned another one of these issues that's important to at least some voters is, you know, sort of threats to our democracy. What's the landscape look like with with Luria taking that active role? Is that helping? Is that hurting? What What's Kiggins say about all this? You know, Luria did say something. Someone asked her whether being on the January 6th commission could hurt her and cost her her reelection. 
she said something along the lines that if that's the case, it's all right, it's worth it um, to be on this uh, commission. Uh, but I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> the only people that are going to be caring about the January 6th commission are the hardcore liberals, the Washington Post subscribers. It's not an issue in this election. I like the idea of the Washington Post subscriber as an interest group. I hadn't really thought about that before. You know, I think <laughs> we should have more interest groups of people who subscribe to your local newspaper. In fact, I would yeah, encourage right. listeners of this podcast, please subscribe to your local newspaper. Um, can, can we make so shout out to Washington Post subscribers out there? I think we need more <laughs> newspaper subscribers. Uh, on the issue of the future of democracy, there is a really interesting contrast here between Luria and Kiggins because Kiggins voted for a $70 million forensic audit of the Virginia 2020 election. So this is, by the way, after, you know, Governor Yunkin is elected and, you know, Republicans sweep statewide. Kiggins voted for a $70 million audit of the 2020 election in Virginia. So, um, you know, all that January 6th stuff is reflected actually in this election in a way that you don't really see anywhere else in the country. Yeah, that that is, I do think, kind of interesting. And, and yes, newspaper subscribers is an interest group for sure, for sure. <laughs> but uh, there is something there. I mean, the 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 future of democracy is something I know. I know the left has been talking about as a real threat. A whole bunch of Republican candidates across the country, and including here in Virginia for U.S. Congress, are twenty twenty election deniers. You know, despite there really not being any evidence of of you know the the election being thrown in any way. You know, Jen Kiggins and, and Yesley Vega, both we, we've mentioned uh, at the top of the show, you know, they're not exactly the uh, the full throated election deniers like like, uh, say, a Bob Good here in the fifth. But, you know, they're still like happy to dodge questions and not commit to saying like, yes, it was a, a fair election. They, they, they won't say it. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I, I tell you what I make about of that, Nathan, is that. It reminds me, you know, history always rhymes, right? So like if you think about the end of the 1800s, there were a lot of contested congressional elections and there was a lot of concerns about, you know, ballot stuffing and illegal activities in elections and voter fraud. And this happened over and over and over again with congressional elections. And so it, the end result of all of that was the infamous Constitution of 1901, which created all these Jim Crow laws around voting and severely reduced the number of voters. If you look at the difference, the difference in voting population between the 1901 election for governor, this is before the new Jim Crow rules, and the 1905 election for governor, you'll see that they went down, the number of voters went down like 35%. That's, you know, when I'm looking at our current discussion of election deniers and the election deniers on the ballot, what I'm seeing coming down the pike here in the future is a raft of reform efforts, quote unquote, reform efforts that will, you know, tighten the ability of people to vote and new rules around voting and making it harder to vote. And I mean, I, I think that's where we're headed with all this. Right. It, 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 sort of to, to ensure their victory, one party wants to put thumb on the scales and, and exclude certain sectors of voters. Is that it? Well, I mean, everybody has their own opinions about why they come to that conclusion. There is a lot of concern about elections being stolen, right? I mean, they're not justified because the election of 2020 
has been proven over and over again to be totally legit. But there are people out there who actually believe that it was stolen. So, and some of those people are going to hold office real soon. I feel like one thing that I found pretty interesting, all of this is, for example, when Youngkin was going out to Arizona to campaign for Carrie Lake, when asked about Lake's election denialism, and Youngkin was asked about that, his rhetoric was kind of like, well, maintaining the unity of the Republican Party is more important than, you know, like little petty differences between um, between people running for office. And I think that's interesting, too, like the idea that the preservation of the Republican Party is maybe more important for Glenn Youngkin than when members of that party are denying legitimate election results. So to think that someone who like presents as he likes to present himself as a very reasonable, you know, Republican, yet can also allow that in his party and consider that something that can exist in his party as well. Maybe that vest he always wears has some sort of superpowers, you know, like it, um, it resists all of the more extreme versions of the Trumpiness of the Harry <laughs> Lakes of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but it is framing though. I mean, and framing is what it's all about, I suppose. But, but to hear that line, Alana, thank you for, for mentioning it. Cause I'd missed that, that response. Um, you know, preserving the unity of the Republican party is more important effectively than like belief in our democratic system. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's what I hear. Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we're going to discuss another race that's neck and neck, Republican challenger Yesley Vega and incumbent Abigail Spanberger. We're also going to ask how redistricting has impacted congressional races. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. You can visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. You can shoot us an email at bolddominion at virginia.edu. Find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Hey, and leave us a nice review while we're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, welcome back. We're going to dive right back into our analysis and discussion with Michael Pope from Pod Virginia and Chaz Nuttycomb from Analysis. Let's back it up again. We, we were talking about Elaine Spanberger and Jen Kiggins uh, and, and said that one's pretty much a toss up and it might be difficult for Lori. It, it may or may not look good going into Election Day. Um, just up the road a little bit, we've got Abigail Spanberger elected the same year as Luria uh, in that Democratic wave a couple couple elections ago um, with a Republican challenger named Yesley Vega. Um, take me through uh, what this particular race looks like. You know, the, the Vega campaign is a failure. It's a very weak campaign, you know, j- just outside of the comments that Vega has made on the issue of abortion. Bamberger has such a money, uh, she has such a financial advantage uh, in the race. You know, the thing is about the seventh is that it's a lot of new territory for her. Her base was really the Richmond suburbs, which she does no longer represent. Well, she represents them currently, but in this new district, if she wins, she won't be representing them. But, you know, this district, even though it is, it does have a lot of new territory for Spanberger, it is bluer than the old 
seventh congressional district. I think I think she holds on. I would be surprised. Not incredibly surprised, but I would be at least moderately surprised if uh, Vega pulled off a win. Um, and if she does pull off a win, I wouldn't say it's because she's run a great campaign or whatever. I would say it would be because the Republican environment is more um, Republican than expected. The thing that's striking to me about Yesley Vega is she represents this trend among Republican candidates of having these much more diverse people on the ballot than they have for many generations, you know? So like we currently have attorney general, Jason Miares, Republican candidate who became attorney general, uh, Lieutenant governor Winsome Sears. Um, and so Yesley Vega kind of represents this new kind of Republican candidate. You know, she did outreach to the Hispanic community for the Yunkin campaign. So now he's returning the favor by campaigning for her. And then, on the Spanberger side, um, you know, Spanberger has been campaigning with Delegate Elizabeth Guzman, who has come under fire from Republicans um, for I mean, going back to the politics of transgender students here. Um, so Elizabeth Guzman has a bill um, that would have the police potentially investigating parents who don't affirm the gender identity of the students. Guzman says, Republicans are mischaracterizing her bill. In any event, um, this has re-injected a lot of that sort of transgender politics from, you know, the Yunkin campaign and um, injected it into this race in a way that has Republicans feeling more energized heading into Election Day. I was actually going to uh, bounce off that, Michael, because I have seen this trend as well, where, where Republicans in Virginia the last few years have definitely found a lot more... Um, not white guys to run for office under the GOP ticket, right? Um, and yeah, historically, you look at, at who's elected as Republicans in the state, it is typically white guys for decades and decades. Um, so it's interesting to see. The other thing that I notice is you've got all four of these candidates, Luria and Kiggins and Spanberger and Vega, they all are these women with backgrounds in defense or law enforcement or intelligence, some kind of Two like- Navy vets running against each other. I know, I know. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, like how- is this like a like a like a template that everybody's supposed to follow now? <laughs> it works for Virginia Beach. I mean, you know, yeah. this is uh, the home of you know obviously a major major military installation, one of the largest in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, like if if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to be the second congressional district. Sure, and so you've got a huge percentage of vets, and a lot of them vote for vets. Yeah, Michael was making a good point on you know just how Republican candidates you know are becoming more and more diverse. And so, you know, they got candidates like uh, Young Kim, um, who were flipping blue districts. And uh, I think you're definitely going to see more of these uh, Latina candidates uh, that the GOP has got, um, especially in places like South Texas, that are going to do well. So it'll be interesting to see if they continue to try and make their caucus uh, more and more diverse. Yeah. And also, I felt like in 2020, it kind of woke the Democrats up to the fact that they can't just take the Hispanic vote for granted. It's not a monolith, obviously. Like people are going to coming to these topics with a variety of wide variety of different backgrounds and values. I feel like I've seen articles saying like, oh, well, Varga is pandering to the Hispanic vote, but also it's like, it's not a monolith. We can't, Democrats should know at this point, it's not going to be universally voting for them. And you can't just talk about immigration either. I mean, Hispanics care about all kinds of things as their, their main issues. Yeah, you know, what's interesting also to note about Vega's personal story 
is that she had a relative who was deported by the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And she kind of changed her political views at that point to move toward the Republicans. And on the campaign trail, she talks about border security. So there's a lot of nuance here with candidates like Yesley Vega, who can talk to voters in a way that the old white guys can't. Kind of zooming out just a little bit on this to the districts we're talking about. We've, we've mentioned redistricting a little bit. This is the first congressional election in Virginia where we're going with the new district maps after the last census. You know, Lurie's district is a little bit more Republican friendly now than it was. We've got some other shifts around the state. Uh, the fifth district is a little bit more like a regular shape and less like a salamander. Um, but the, the, the net result, though, is that we still have really only about two districts out of 11 that, that are what you might call competitive. I mean, take me through the whole redistricting thing. There was a lot of noise and a lot of drama, and we had to call in special masters to, to make up this new map. What, what's the result of all this? How, do you think it was a success? Uh, you know, we basically had um, two competitive districts before um, as well, I would note, in the old map. Yes, the fifth was pretty contested back in 2018 and 2020, but I think a, a reason why um, uh, there was a blue wave year and then 2020, Cameron Webb was a hell of a candidate. So the 5th District is somewhat similar in its current composition uh, to the old district. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in a blue wave midterm, you know, maybe Democrats can try and contest it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Nathan, you used a key word, which was salamander. You know, the history of the use of the word gerrymander is that it was about a Massachusetts congressional district that looked like a salamander and it helped uh, Elderbridge Jerry. So we started calling it gerrymandering. Um, So if you look at our current maps here, the congressional districts that we now have as a result of that redistricting commission, you don't see a lot of salamanders. I mean, like these shapes make sense. They are the kind of shapes that you would draw if you had no idea where the incumbents lived. And they, they, if you sort of plot out the state as different kinds of geographic interests, this congressional map seems to me to pretty much align with that. And certainly in a way that the old congressional districts did not. No, I, I certainly agree with that, Michael. And the, the salamander reference was not by accident. <laughs> um, I, you know, living here in Charlottesville and Albemarle County, it is a little weird to be in the same district as like South Hill and Danville, where I, we have very few connections that far south. But you got to draw the line somewhere. So that's kind of how it falls. Well, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier in the show, uh, Michael, you mentioned the, the Wasson Center poll, and, and this is something that I've, I've, I saw in the results, kind of looking at it generically. Uh, Virginia's got about a third of the, the voters in Virginia identify as, as conservative, uh, very conservative, about a third as, as very liberal, uh, um, and about a third something else, something in between. Um, you know, that makes politics awfully interesting and also sort of sort of fickle <laughs> makes it a very purple state not just blue not just red um but what does that mean looking ahead to to how virginia plods along in the next you know few years well the the Wasson center has done a lot of really interesting polling here to give us a snapshot of voters in this election cycle um one of them i was fascinated by the issues that people were interested in because of the partisan breakdown but then also there's kind of a relationship, I think, between 
like Republicans are interested in crime, right? Democrats are interested in gun violence. Aren't crime and gun violence kind of the same thing? But the, there's a partisan difference in how people are interested in them as an election issue. Um, so that was really interesting, I think, a takeaway from the Wasson Center polling. Um, and then also you got Biden so far underwater here. I mean, this is not good. I mean, just as a, a general maxim, when you got your incumbent president so far down in the uh, 30s and 40s in terms of approval, that is not good for Democrats. Sure, sure. No, of course. Uh, you know, looking at at uh, the role of, of Glenn Youngkin this year, uh, he's, you know, we already kind of mentioned this a little bit, but he's he's been jet sitting around the country campaigning for other GOP candidates, not just Yesley Vega in the in, in Spanberger's district, but also in Arizona and in Michigan. I mean, all over the place. What what does Yunkin represent in today's GOP? You know, the thing that strikes me about Yunkin running for president, um, which, you know, he's clearly setting the stage for at least making some sort of consideration of that. Right. Um, all all of these campaign stops that you just mentioned are, you know, having people talk about the idea of Yunkin running for president. Um, so it is interesting when you think about the history of Virginia governors who became presidents. There are really not that many of them. Um, in fact, I know that you like trivia, Nathan. So <laughs> I would ask you a question. How many Virginia governors became president? Oh, actual governors? That I'm not sure. I know there have been, what, eight Virginians that were president? Yeah. So at governors of Virginia, there's Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, and John Tyler. Mm -hmm. So John Tyler was the last Virginia governor to become president, right? So um, there's really not a lot of precedent here for Yunkin on the campaign trail running for governor, um, unless you want to go back to the 1840s when Tyler was was president. So anyway, this is a long way of saying Jefferson, Monroe, and Tyler are the only Virginia governors to become president. There's really not a, any recent precedent for this. In fact, the more recent precedent is Doug Wilder trying to be governor and run for president at the same time, and that did not work out for Doug Wilder. Right, right. So when I look at Yunkin, though, I mean, he, you start, you know, moving all around the country campaigning for people. Yeah, people are going to say, oh, hey, this guy's on the national stage. Um, obviously, it was a big deal when Yunkin won uh, last year as well, because he kind of broke the, 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 the Democratic streak that had been going for several cycles. Um, but Yunkin's not Trump. He's he's a different style. Now, a lot of the policies and 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 uh, framing of things and that, that sort of business CEO sense end up in a very similar place. But He's got a different image and a different personality. You know, in general, when, I, when it comes to 2024 for Youngkin, I, I don't think he's really gunning for to actually win uh, the, the presidential nomination because I think uh, it's, it's still going to end up being Trump if he runs. And if Trump doesn't run, it'll be DeSantis because he's the closest thing to Trump. But I think Youngkin is interested in being a vice president. So Election Day is really quite soon, uh, just a couple weeks away. What? What are the key things to look for? What, what should we all keep our eyes peeled on? We are one of the first states that has our um, results coming in. So people are going to be looking at us around the country to kind of determine what the year is going to be looking like. How bad are the losses for the Democrats going to be? Because I do think they're going to end up losing the House. So overall, it's just going to be interesting to see 
if and how they can mitigate their losses. Yeah, I concur with that, with with what Chaz just said. I think people from across the country are going to be looking at the races in Virginia, specifically the second, of course, because it's the closest and the most likely in terms of a flip. And, you know, what also I would say about that election in the second is that it's also going to end up being a referendum on the January 6th committee, right? So like, if Luria loses, that's going to be viewed by many people as a rejection by voters of the January 6th committee in favor of someone who, you know, wanted to spend $70 million on a forensic audit of the 2020 election. So um, Nathan brought up several times this issue of threats to democracy as one of the you know, uh, campaign things that people are going to make be making choices about. The second congressional district there in Virginia Beach is really going to be at the forefront of this and and will be an indication, as Jazz just said, of what happens in other congressional districts that will decide later in the night, you know, as the polls close in different time zones. We will know later and later, but uh, we will have a really good indication of what's going to happen in all those congressional districts by looking at the second here in Virginia, which will end up being kind of like a bellwether, I think, for election night. Well, and uh, we'll go out on a, on another uh, trivia bit, uh, Michael, because I know we were talking John Tyler. Um, uh, despite being As president, you do. It, despite being president in the 1840s, John Tyler, believe it or not, still has a living grandson today. Yes, I I I read about that. Yes, I'm familiar with that story. Living grandson, crazy. Living grandson, Harrison Ruffin Tyler is 93 years old. Yeah, Tyler was governor of Virginia in the 1820s, so 1825 to 1827. This was a time period when uh, governors of Virginia were actually appointed by the General Assembly. So John Tyler, not elected governor, but appointed by the General Assembly to be governor, um, and then of course became president in the 1840s. Yep. And just kept on making babies and then they kept on making babies. And here we go. Yeah, that is a very strange generational quirk in terms of the timing to make that work out where you got John Tyler's grandson still with us here. Um, pretty, pretty amazing story. Hey, uh, Chaz and Michael, thank you so much for joining us on, on Bold Dominion. Thank yeah, you. thank you for having me. Many thanks to Michael Pope and Chaz Nuttycomb for joining us today. You can check out Michael's podcast, Pod Virginia, which he hosts with Thomas Bowman. They do lots of news and analysis of Virginia politics. You can also check out Chaz's podcast, Analysis, which dives into all sorts of election forecasting. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was edited by the wonderful Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.